All right, dear. What'll you have to drink? I will have some decaf coffee in your finest bone china. <laughs> All right. I think we could do that. This is Where is the Love? I am Michael Ware. I'm Melissa Ware. And we're back for another episode. Uh, you know, we're not going to belabor the point. The Bills, uh, the Buffalo Bills had a valiant, valiant game. Uh, we're so proud of the team. They did fall short, 13 seconds short. Uh, but Coin uh, toss short. Coin toss short. Uh, but we're we're so proud, so proud of the Bills, and thanks to all of you who uh, were rooting for the Bills with us, who expressed your condolences over the course of the last week. It means means a lot. Uh, we were down for a bit, but as you can tell, we've recovered. We're already looking to next season. We're hopeful. We're the we're the wares. I'll never be okay. <laughs> <laughs> You've been forever altered. Just forever altered. Forever changed. By these events, yes. Uh, I'll tell you what wasn't uplifting. What? Roadrunner, the Anthony <laughs> Bourdain documentary. Yeah. We watched this on Monday night or Tuesday night. We were both yes. feeling, well, I was feeling especially down. You were like, your choice. We'll watch what you want. And we were going to... We were looking at The Last Duel. Yep. We are looking at a couple others. And then I saw the Bourdain doc, and I thought, you know what? I love Anthony Bourdain. I love travel, love food. Uh, this will really pick me up. Uh, and instead, in a way that I don't think that they conveyed in the advertising... Or that they were really explicit about. Maybe it's just me. Maybe everyone assumed that this would be a movie that was obsessed with why Bourdain uh, uh, killed himself. Mm -hmm. um, that wasn't the vibe I got. I thought it was a doc about who Bourdain was, the career he had. I assumed it would touch on the end of his life. But like the last hour of the doc, it seemed... Well, really, the whole doc... It was as if the point was like, can we, can we try and understand why he killed himself? And then what I especially didn't like about, okay, if that's the approach you want to take, A, you should be clear about that. Now, some people might say maybe like Roadrunner is like a, a tip of the hand that that's sort of the aim, but I, I think that's a little too, too much of a stretch. Um, but, but, you know, if, if that's the approach you want to take, that's fine. But, but you should be upfront about that. And then they close with like this uplifting thing where his friends are like crying and being like, be like, I don't want him to be remembered for how he died, but how he lived. But it's like your whole doc was revolved around this, this question. And I think really, uh, uh inappropriately was gossipy and and pretty strongly suggested that his girlfriend 
was the was the 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 the, the cause the the person to blame which again irresponsible to me but I, I like m many aspects of the doc. I mean, the main thing that comes through is just what a unique mind and what a unique sort of character and heart Bourdain had, which is the reason why so many fell in love with him. I mean, the way that he looked at things, uh, his his wit, uh, the way that he could, that he spoke as a writer and the way that his sort of writerly sensibilities kind of float out into a television format that was all deeply moving to see um but but yeah i just thought it was was a bit of like false advertising or just wasn't completely up front with the with the audience about about what they were doing what they were what they were going to be interested in what 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 did you think about the doc i don't know i kind of disagree with you i agree with you on a lot of points especially the whole kind of blaming his girlfriend at the end the kind of like like wink wink and it, I, yeah I was uncomfortable with that um but I don't know you kind of know what happens to him so I had made the assumption that it would end up there and I actually think the whole leading up to that point and asking why and then the whole like oh we don't want to remember him that way the document the documentary felt like very human because what happened leaves chaos in its wake, leaves confusion, leaves people asking why, and it will leave people who love someone else to say, actually, I don't want that to be their whole legacy. I want to remember them well. So it felt very, that felt actually quite natural to me. You know, the girlfriend thing set that aside completely. Yeah, irresponsible there. Um, but I also wasn't in a down place when we watched it. I'm like you, <laughs> that so might I be. feel like I you was, were a bit more offended. I was really wanted, down. You wanted the Anthony uh. Bourdain that we love, that we watch before we travel, that we just watch. We buy episodes off of Prime whenever we feel like we want to, you know, see him again, kind of thing. Like we love him, yeah, um, and we loved his work. And oh. I said about what, like twenty minutes into Roadrunner, I was like, "This man is a five wing four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I'm a five wing four. I can sense one when I see one." Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it was really interesting to see his earlier career because I've read I read his book, the his book that made him famous, Kitchen Confidential. Kitchen Confidential. I read it in a book club a couple years ago. My friend Ava picked it out, and um, I loved that book. It was so good. Um. And so I was, I loved the the first like 20, really loved the first 20 to 30 minutes because it went through that very early career. And at one point, you know, he was like, what, sitting on a couch in like the very early footage and you and I both looked at each other like, what a cool man. Just, just like, a cool just dude. Just like his body language. Yes. He's just so much cooler than I can ever be. Like I can't, like I can barely carry myself anywhere. Like... There is like a certain kind of linkiness or gangliness. Gangliness that is cool. Like Chet Baker had that yeah, too. You've told me like this. Chet Baker was kind of geeky, kind of gangly, kind of like awkward, and yet uh like I mean he was the he he was he he was cool personified. Um and Bourdain kind of had that, had that too. Je ne sais quoi. That je ne sais quoi. 
Um, so l- look, I want to like I'm not trying to dissuade folks from no. seeing it. Uh, there were just some things that surprised me. I think Melissa made some valid points. Might have been the result of my emotional state at the yeah, time. Yeah, so if you're in an emotional state, don't watch it. If you don't, <laughs> yeah, right, like, yeah. what it leads up to and how he died, if that bothers you, do not watch this. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but you know, if you like Bourdain, and, and you know, it's it's a beautiful documentary. I yeah. thought it was it was beautifully, mm-hmm. beautifully shot and, and moving. For sure. So, yeah, hey, yeah. if if you've seen Roadrunner, or if you decide to, to if you decide to watch it after this discussion, uh, let us know what let us know what you think. Uh, I think this is the first uh, real disagreement Melissa and I have had on the podcast, and so you could uh, pick a winner uh, and really uh, really um, create a real uh, cycle of resentment between us. Uh, that our audience is, is siding with, wants to with, fight. with Melissa. Or I'm going to say that like every few episodes until but somebody no, catches yeah, on yeah, sure. and says something because that line is hilarious. It is. It's and very, it needs to be acknowledged. Okay, yes. thank okay. you. Right. Um, all right. The article for the top five uh, this week that we want to cover is by Thomas Edsel. And what I love about Thomas Edsel's columns in the New York Times is that you don't need to see the byline to know that it's uh, Edsel Column. Yeah. Like, he's just so distinctive. He's the, one of my favorites. The way he writes, the way he approaches uh, his work. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's probably not for everyone. Mm-hmm. It is for me. Like, it, I'm, for I'm sure me. it's for you because well, he creates all these, like, categories and, like, uh, it's yeah, a very logical. It's very logical. Um, there's no floweriness. There's no. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. It gets straight to the point. Always based in academia. He's always presenting multiple studies. And I just hate flowery writing. I just get to the point for me. Yeah. So this is our ode to Thomas B. Edsel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so the headline is America has split and it's now in very dangerous territory. And I especially appreciated this column from Etzel because I, I think there's been a lot of loose talk recently about civil war and uh, sort of these, um, again, this sort of very uh, loose talk about the nature of polarization today and, and what it will lead to, what it means. And Etzel seems to be saying, like, let's, let's bring this into uh, the realm of uh, research and data and uh, some some tighter descriptions of exactly what we're what we're facing and so we probably won't be able to walk through everything he lays out in this article uh, in large part because a lot of it is just referencing studies that I think require digging into more and he sort of sets out these categories but then, sort of refers you to a number of reports and studies that have come out. But let's just kind of like cover as as much as, as we can. And I'll, I'll start by sort of reading a bit from, from the opening. Oh, he, uh, Edsel writes, Why did the national emergency brought about by the COVID pandemic not only fail to unite the country, but instead provoke the exact opposite development, further polarization? 
I posed this question to Nolan McCarty, a political scientist at Princeton. McCarty emailed me back, quote from McCarty, with the benefit of hindsight, COVID seems to be the almost ideal polarizing crisis. It was conducive to creating strong identities and mapping on to existing ones. That these identities corresponded to compliance with public health measures literally increased the riskiness of intergroup interaction. The financial crisis was also polarizing for similar reasons. It was too easy for different groups to blame each other for the problems. McCarty went on, any depolarizing event would need to be one where the causes are transparently external in a way that makes it hard for social groups to blame each other. It is increasingly hard to see what sort of event has that feature these days. Edsel continues, polarization has become a force that feeds on itself, gaining strength from the hostility it generates, finding sustenance on both the left and the right. Uh, so, uh, uh, sort of, uh, we'll, we'll uh, end quote for now from Edsel. Um, I think a couple things I want to pull out that he digs into deeper through the article. One, polarization is not the province of just the right or the left. Yep. Polarization is uh, feeds on itself, in Edsel's words. Uh, and in some ways, it, actually in some really profound ways, the kind of polarization we see actually relies on it existing on both sides. Mm -hmm. If it didn't exist on both sides, then it wouldn't have the energy to continue to feed on itself. Yep. It's not just that the right is polarized and it's feeding on its own sort of uh, polarized energies or that the left is polarized and the left is... It, it, it's, it's that... Um, it's, it's actually uh, this bipolar... Uh, polarization uh, and the poles actually feed off the polarization and sort of pol negative affective uh, uh, polarization is a uh, term social scientists uh, use uh, of not just their own side but the other side so so that's one thing that's interesting and then the other sort of thing that McCarty proposes is any depolarizing event would need to be one where the causes are transparently external. Yeah. In a way that makes it hard for social groups to blame each other. Uh, and then he says it's increasingly hard to see what sort of event has that feature these days. In other words, if there is a way that we could blame each other, that we could blame some other group for a problem uh, in our social life, we will find a way to do that. That is a, uh, that is a, that's dangerous territory. <laughs> that's yeah. a difficult place to be. And so there are many other observations sort of I have, but, but Melissa would love your comments, your sort of, uh, uh, uh your sort of response to just this opening from the op-ed and then anything else that sort of stuck out to you. Yeah, the... The last that last line from from the scholar McCarty is saying it is increasingly hard to see what sort of event has that feature these days. The kind of event where you cannot blame one another. Um, I kind of want to go around a focus group of uh, academics who focus on democracy, focus on polarization, and just say, 
what event? What event do you think would cause us to not blame one another? Because uh, as soon as I read that line, I started thinking, what would be the event? I actually don't know. That's, uh, yeah, that was the, 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 the opening of this entire article with these quotes from McCarty, I think, sum up very well why it's dangrous, uh, this sort of pervasive polarization that is happening on both sides, that is bipolar. Um, I'm sorry, could, could I yeah. interject something yeah, there? Ahead. Which is, so it's so interesting that you asked that question. Uh, just over a year ago, um, we were having a conversation just uh, sort of uh, politically. It was a conversation that Biden was emphasizing China. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the potential political purpose of that could be exactly this. Yeah. That China was an external force sure. that could unify Americans uh, to... Uh, you know, to, to identify an external enemy. The danger of that, both in that specific huh. circumstance yeah. uh-huh. I know where you're going and in our history, mm-hmm. is really is really significant. And so, like, one of the dynamics here is that as polarization deepens and as the consequences of polarization deepen, Melissa's question and the, and the question McCarty asks is going to become an increasingly obvious and increasingly uh, 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 essential one, which is, and McCarty didn't, didn't phrase it this way, but it's how do I identify an external enemy? Well, there's there's a pretty dark history of what happens when any group of people need an external enemy in order to maintain internal coherence. I mean, in part, that's what's happening internal. That I mean, in part, that's the story of polarization yeah. generally and what's happening here, which is that you have these groups that are, and especially when you talk about these groups as a part of a political party, and we have two political parties that aren't necessarily coherent. And so when you have political parties that are struggling to maintain coherence, uh, they need to identify an external enemy, and that's the vicious cycle we're in now. I think one thing I'd like to point people to is, is uh, as that creates more and more significant problems internally, there's, it's but it's possible that there's an increasing sort of focus to identify enemies external to our domestic politics, which could lead to a whole slew of problems on its own. So that that's the first point I want to make. The second point, which is a a point I I make pretty regularly, but I make it because I I, I think it's. It's the reality of our politics right now and of our society right now. And if we don't come to terms with it, we're not going to make progress on anything else, which is I think it's the wrong question to ask about uh, what what possible depolarizing event, uh, what, what possible event could take place yeah. that's depolarizing. Uh-huh. It's, the it's, problem yeah. is that we have a people and a politics that runs off the fuel of turning any event into one w- uh, where you're uh, identifying and blaming uh, and othering uh, uh, an, an enemy group, an outgroup. Because that impulse is there, 
um, we can tinker with all kinds of structures and sort of like mitigation techniques, but I think those are going to inevitably fail until we deal with the heart problem, which is that we increasingly have a populace that is prodded by elites who should steward their influence with a greater sense of service and care for the people they're serving. But, uh, but we have a populace that is increasingly operating uh, through this sort of antagonistic mindset. And until you have a public that actually looks to public life, not looking to blame enemies, not looking to identify enemies for social problems that occur, but instead goes to the public in order to love and to serve, then none of we could spend uh, all the time we want waiting for the perfect event to arrive. Uh, it's never going to get here. Um, and so I, I just those those. Uh, uh, as you were talking, Melissa, those two points really stuck out to me. And just to be clear, I was part like I, as a as a um, observer, as an analyst, I was looking at Biden's China rhetoric, and who knows what the actual internal dynamics were. But to me, on the outside, it seemed like oh, this is a this is a possible way to advance the unity rhetoric and the sort of unity message. Oh, which is to say, and right, Biden talked about this in his inaugural, which is like we need to get our 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 democracy act together, not because, it, like, uh, not just because it would be good for us. It's our values. We need to like live out our values. Democracy is good for the flourishing of our people. But like he was quite explicit, like China is coming, and China is using our disarray against us. And so if we want to defeat or contend with or continue to be uh, the world's superpower, like we, that's the reason we need to uh, care for one another. Uh, it's just, um, and that's just an interesting and fascinating sort of, sort of dynamic. So something you've been talking about quite a bit, I would say for the past year, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, is political sectarianism. Where do you see that fitting in here? Because Edsel continues on after, you know, this whole beginning with McCarty. He goes into economic inequality and what economic inequality, how that interacts with polarization, um, goes into sort of the cultural elements of polarization where, you know, liberals like a certain kind of gene and conservatives like a certain kind of gene, like jeans that you wear. Um, all well and good. But you're always talking about this concept of political sectarianism that's being talked about by a few other people, but really not many. How does this fit in? Yeah, I mean, so I think it fits in with exactly what he's he's talking about here. I was a little surprised, and maybe I missed it, but I don't think he he brought in that particular concept. But yeah, um, political sectarianism is uh, a concept that uh, about a dozen social scientists put out. Uh, near the end of 2020, and uh, as sort of their framework for how, uh, what makes the particular kind of polarization we're seeing today uh, distinct from kinds of polarization we've seen in, in the past. And uh, their, 
in their brief essay, which we can link to um, in, in the show notes, uh, has three pillars. And those three pillars are uh, one, uh, aversion and aversion towards others. A second is uh, othering, uh, this propensity to, to sort of other and exclude and sort of um, uh, emphasize the, the difference of those uh, uh, not part of the in-group, whatever the in-group is. And then third is moralism, or what I refer to as a misplaced moralism. So sort of um, uh, uh, putting an, uh, an, an absolutist and sort of overly value-laden, emphatic sort of sheen over uh, political disagreements. Um, and so, so that gets into so much of what he's talking about here. I appreciated his nuance around the way inequality plays into it, which I think yeah. is exactly right, which is Absolutely. inequality can certainly be an accelerant of yes. polarization, but it doesn't explain it yes. and, uh, or, or fully explain it. And polarization can exist without uh, inequality, like inequality, isn't doesn't isn't the so, sort of the sole criterion of of uh, of of polarization. Another interesting point he makes uh, that Edsel makes here uh, is that what is exceptional is uh, that the level of polarization we have uh, here is actually quite uncommon for a wealthy, advanced yes. nation. Um, and that is part of what, um, uh, so not only is the level of polarization in the U.S. Uh, higher now than it is really anywhere else in the country, in the world, basically. And, and again, you could look at the article for, for, um, for, uh, for, for, for these, these studies. Um, uh, but it, there's, it's also... United States is unique because of its, um, where we do see higher levels of polarization, they seems to be sort of uh, overlap with um, uh, a less functioning, lower functioning society generally. Yeah. And so uh, really, really interesting stuff. I don't know if, if what there sort of stood out to you most. Yeah, one other note I want to make about uh, what you just said that our level of polarization in the United States um, is unique because of our level of wealth. Our level of polarization is also unique with how much democratic experience we have. Yes, yes, yes. Um, that's also huge to note. Um, so another thing that stood out to me uh, from the article were there's this paragraph, there's this couple paragraphs on earlier research. So early research on levels of prejudice, and between amongst conservatives and liberals, so across the spectrum. And early research constantly found that among conservatives, um, there was always a greater level of prejudice against liberal associated groups like minorities, the poor gay people, and um, basically all the other marginalized constituencies. But the problem is, is that those studies never really included conservative associated groups. So as soon as you added in conservative associated groups more recently in studies, um, groups like Christian fundamentalists, military, I mean, quote unquote, rich people, um, the 
there are similar levels of prejudice amongst both liberals towards those groups that I just mentioned and then conservatives towards the, the <laughs> former groups that I mentioned, which is just so funny. During my master's degree, I wrote a thesis on the left in France and their level of discrimination against Muslims, xenophobia, xenophobia xenophobic rhetoric, and this was back in 2011. And... When I went and looked at all of the literature on this sort on xenophobic rhetoric, xenophobia, discourse analysis, there was not a single study. And I looked everywhere. I went to other I went to a bunch of professors and said, Am I right? I'm not finding this, so am I right? Am I just missing something? There was not a single study on how the left could possibly participate in xenophobic rhetoric. Every single study was on the right and far right. And this was across Europe. This wasn't just France. I was like, okay, well, let me just see if there's another study maybe on the UK or on, you know, uh, Austria with, you know, what's been happening with neo-Nazi groups there for decades. Nope. I don't know now. I haven't actually searched, you know, like Google Scholar now to see if anybody else besides literally me (laughs) has written on this. But I mean, it's just really common in academia and in research to just sort of think the left is just just filled with angels who you who do not other anybody well well is it right so isn't it just like the most incredible thing that you have you know these folks researching prejudice like social antagonism polarization who who's you know, main finding who who's like find who's finding that was influencing philanthropy and continues to influence philanthropy and uh, media and discussions. You know, in the context of, pol- of polarization, was um, it's actually just the it's only the other side that's prejudice mm-hmm. <laughs> that has pre- like um, like if only if only we could take care of the other side preju- uh, the other side's prejudices then uh like we'd be cool with uh polarization it's like no that that is <laughs> that would be a good time to like stop and pause and ask yourself maybe i'm polarized if 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 my if my like conclusion is only the other people are <laughs> are prejudiced or have biases then uh th- th- yeah that's like a that that that's a side to like uh to take a deep breath. So I'm really glad you you pulled that out. I think the last thing I wanted, to, the last sort of topic, the last bucket he kind of hits on is this idea of ideological nationalization and particularly the way that that maps onto our two-party system. So, um, so basically this is just the idea that sort of the national parties and national politics are increasingly driving the 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 activity of political parties and their members at the local level which was not always the case um melissa you you might remember um i had the opportunity to speak to the sioux county democratic party oh right i remember this yep in iowa Mm -hmm. iowa I believe it has six counties, if I remember uh, correctly. Sioux, uh, Sioux County is their most conservative by far. Right. And I decided, this group invited me to speak, and I decided, what the heck, I have this talk about, um, I, I have a talk about the importance of not letting your political party dictate 
your opinions and your conscience, but actually the, the role of political parties being to mediate uh, differences of uh, opinion and conscience within the party. Uh, and so if you're allowing the party to dictate your opinions and conscience, you're actually, uh, you're actually uh, uh, not allowing, you know, in a way you're not allowing parties to function at least the way they ought to function. Um, and so I, I, I went, I was expecting to get booed um, really by, by these group of democratic activists who, you know, I, I love folks who are involved in political parties and stuff, but I just, I just figured, you know, this is not gonna be an attractive talk to them uh in in this political environment it was the most incredible thing though i finished my talk and the vice chair of the party is asking follow-up questions like um you know so so what does this mean for like if we don't agree with the national party uh we uh, we we can communicate that to them and and how would we go about doing that and i was able to say that's actually why you exist that that's and that's actually why and i don't mean to to be um uh i don't mean to be sort of uh dis, dis, disparaging i think my 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 main point here is is um it, it was a it was a glimpse of sort of a recovery for me uh uh uh, recovery of the idea that that local politics doesn't have to be dictated by national politics. Actually, local politics is meant to feed into national politics, um, not just the other way around. But that is exceedingly rare right now. Increasingly, you have, and actually, one recent example of this right is the Arizona Democratic Party yep. censuring. Its own senator, yep. uh, Senator Cinema, yes. for not going along with the National Party. That's that's an odd thing that the state party yep. would feel more accountable to na to national politics yep. than one of its elected senators. Yep. And obviously, we don't need to get into the weeds of the dynamics there. But it's it's a fascinating fascinating uh, thing. Um, uh, just to sort of move to Etzel's close here, and this is a really striking, striking statement I here. Striking is one way to describe it. Depre yeah. Depressing is Depressing. Depressing. Uh, um, on, the, on the scale of one to 10, uh, one being rainbows and puppies and 10 being roadrunner, uh, this is this is a, approaching on roadrunner levels of sad and, and this depressing. This is a triple roadrunner. Yeah, yeah, this is, <laughs> Honestly. yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, need to laugh so we don't cry. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, so I'll read directly from the end of this Etzel column. Uh, looking over the contemporary political landscape, there appear to be no major or effective movements to counter polarization. As the McCoy press report shows, only 16 of the 52 countries that reached levels of pernicious polarization, which is, we're already there, mm -hmm. um, succeeded in achieving depolarization and in, quote, a significant number of instances later repolarized to pernicious levels. The progress toward depolarization in seven of 16 episodes was later undone. Uh, end quote. That does, uh, uh, that does not suggest a favorable prognosis for the United States. 
and that's how Etzel closes his column. Um, so, you, you know, I think one question I'd like to ask you, Melissa, is like sure. after reading this, uh-huh. uh, did it affect nuance uh, sort of the Civil War talk? It's sort of uh, keeping all of this in mind. Um, and I don't know what the answer is, uh, but uh, are we headed for a civil war? I don't think so. Like, I'll always say no. I, it feels, it's one of those things where uh, you feel like, no, that's that's for a less mature populace. It, like, it, but then I say that, and I know how many civil wars are going on around the world, and that constantly start up each year, and it's kind of like, we think we're better than anybody else. Um, no, I'm not going to. No, I'm not gonna. That's the kind of escalation talk that I'm just not going to entertain at this point. I think pernicious polarization, which, by the way, pernicious polarization has got to be one of my favorite new political terms. Pernicious polarization. It just rolls off the tongue. Anyways, um, I think it's beyond concerning. I think that stat at the end, only 16 of 52 countries have actually been able to overcome pernicious polarization is deeply troubling. Oh, again, if well, I already have a focus yeah, group. Yeah, just to, well, 16 uh, achieved depolarization, but in a significant number of those 16, they repolarized. Yes. <laughs> um, so. Which, you know, I could see the, the, the answer that I was just about to give and one that I feel like probably if we were again to pull together a focus group of all these scholars that are mentioned in this article and ask them, you know, are we headed towards a civil war? I would say my best guess is that we might be able to depolarize a bit and then repolarize and then depolarize and then repolarize. And I think we might end up in a sort of vacillation um, if I were to make a guess based on just like the geography of the country, um, the sort of generational populace, like the generations, how they're split up and aging and things like that and the sort of attitudes that that sort of vacillate between the generations um i i think one of the things that we sort of need to talk about here besides like your thesis in the beginning which i think is fundamental i think it's the base it's the foundation of the conversation here of how to change hearts and the way people sim change sort of how they sort of operate in the world I think that that's huge, like the foundation. The other thing that I think needs to be talked about a lot, and it is being talked about by quite a few writers that we love, is social media and media in general. Sure. And the role that those two things play. Because I often think about some of these dynamics and how we have had divides before and we have had, you know, sort of like ways that we've focused externally, like on an external enemy. I mean, literally the Cold War, come on. Um, but we, it wasn't in a time of the acceleration that social media creates and the media creates and access to constant news. And we have that Yale study that came out, what, a few months ago about the, the echo chambers and yeah. the rage, how rage is the winner of the day when it comes to places like Twitter, that those are the posts that do well the most. And it's teaching people how to 
you know, get satisfaction by constantly posturing towards rage, which again, our posture, the way we view the world and how we view our roles in it and caring for the other, like those are fundamental things here. But the sort of channel of media and social media, I think is a deeply important point here. Again, I went off the civil war question because it makes me deeply uncomfortable, but I would say we're probably going to end up having a vacillation between depolarization and polarization. And I don't know what the carrying capacity is of our depolarization. That's a big question that I'd ask in a focus group of these uh, uh, scholars, like what is our carrying capacity and how long could we vacillate? Um, did any of these others, when they repolarized, have they vacillated? Have they just kept in a sort of like steady state of vacillation? Yeah, so so I, I think one of the things that's clear is that polarization has an engine. Yeah. And so when, when, um, when you have something that feeds on itself, usually like vacillation is not the way that that's going to go. That's not what we've seen over the last 40 years. Over the last 40 years, we've seen a, a steady incline with only according uh, according to this Varieties of Democracy Institute uh, study that's in the New York Times article, uh, on, only one very short-term uh, dr uh, little drop in polarization as they measure it yeah. on the way to our sky-high levels now. Um, and so, um, so when I think about it, when, when you think about um, something that sort of feeds on itself, then you kind of say, well, look, if this is, if the, if the engine, if the logic of this thing is, is such that it just keeps getting worse, then certainly it's some place on that spectrum has to, has to be civil war. That, that's like my downer opinion. Uh, and I could argue against that. My more hopeful opinion, which I could also argue against, is that, you know, we know from the Knight Foundation's work, the More yeah. in Common study, mm -hmm. that when you talk about the sort of extremes mm -hmm. of our politics, um, they're actually marginal as a percentage of the population. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, now, marginal as a percentage of the population, you know, you talk about, uh, uh, you know, 16% or so. That's still... A lot of people. That's, that's, yeah. that's uh, uh, tens of millions of people. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, uh, when the majority is part of uh, the exhausted middle, as, as the More in Common study describes, you say, well... Uh, um, you know, uh, maybe at the at the brink of civil war, maybe that's enough for the exhausted middle to say, Do you know what? Let's let's uh, maybe we need to engage here and, and offset these extremes. And so uh, maybe the, the extremes that have sort of um, are either take politics uh, sort of sort of take these extremist tendencies way too seriously, or what I think we have a lot of is people who treat politics as a game. And I yeah. think that was a, the story of, we, we need to sort of land the plane here, but I do think that was, I think 
part of why and how January 6th could happen is that it was this kind of visible, tangible, action-oriented sort of milestone of the extent to which sort of uh, extreme influential sort of serious forces could actually recruit a broader sort of um, group of people to actually take action and at the very least show up at, at what turned out to be um, uh, uh, something that was very serious, uh, uh, something that resulted in great violence. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's like, that's, that's why January 6th looms so large in this conversation. That's why you have the Civil War conversation, because it is this sort of, oh, this isn't, like, obviously voting is important, but this, is, this isn't just about sort of uh, uh, a, 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 a marginal uh, extremes that are mostly sort of um, stewing in isolation. Um, January 6th was uh, a, a clear indication that you could actually have uh, a sort of a radicalized population express itself in a publicly visible way that that sort of acted on our democratic institutions, acted on other people in a way that that caused literal violence, uh, not just putting. Uh, well, not just resulting in sort of political losses or uh, sort of uh, unsavory rhetoric on social media, um, but but actually actual violence um, in the streets. You know, just to make the point, I think this is some of what sort of the 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 right perceived uh, in some of the. Summer protests, right? Like the, this, this idea that it was all grouped together, um, but you had a you 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 had a a, a radical uh, sort of a group of the po populace that was willing to uh, uh, attack businesses, vandalize businesses, uh, uh, storm CNN uh, mm -hmm. uh, headquarters, and that kind of thing. And so that that's sort of the new precipice we're on. That's mm -hmm. why the Civil War conversation is saying, because we've seen on, um, you know, ostensibly the the right, and right, this isn't the whole right of American politics, just like it isn't the whole left of American politics, but ostensibly on the right and the left, we've seen these, uh, the, these very public experiences tangible uh, expressions of, of 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 actual violence um 
that suggests how much further can this develop? And again, just to like come full circle, like if polarization is an engine, if polarization does feed on itself, and if polarization is to blame for, uh, is at least partially to blame for uh, uh, January 6th, then then is that just the beginning? And I think that's like, um, it's a legitimate question to ask. I think the, the last thing I'd say is, um, part of my concern with the Civil War talk is that um, it can be used to take the level of responsibility off of the individual and can sort of lead us into this mentality that we are sort of uh, going to be pulled into mm -hmm. uh, uh, it, like by the weight of history mm -hmm. here. When, as I argued earlier in this podcast, it, it, it's actually what we need right now is a movement of personal empowerment where individuals feel like and take on the, responsi the responsibility themselves of becoming the kind of people who don't respond to the mm -hmm. incentives of polarization. And the Civil War conversation seems to me to take away or disempower uh, that from taking place. Um, if, if we're on the verge of civil war, um, you know, most individuals are going to, I think, respond to that with, with um, uh, a sense of feeling uh, disempowered, a sense of feeling like uh, a cog in the machine. Mm -hmm. uh, when I'd say, actually, we need, we need people to realize that if that is the ultimate trajectory we're on, the way it stops is with each of us as individuals. Uh, and then through institutions themselves, actually, actually pumping the brakes, saying that no, we're not going to take take part. We're not going to feed into this cycle. I think that about wraps it up for that article this week, um, Michael. I was just looking at the clock. We are now t minus eleven minutes until the next girdle. I'm going to talk about girdle every single episode just because it's called Michael called it girdle once and I'm just going to run with it every single episode. I mean, our, my brother was texting us today that he tried girdle for the first time. So like, I mean, you know. Yeah, no, I, I, I do feel like, um, like the creator is starting to mess with us. Like he's, he's picking words to evade the most common strategies and, uh, and I don't appreciate it. Um, I mean, he is a designer of social experiments. Again, I'm just convinced this is all a social experiment. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm glad to continue to take part um, in in uh, in in this uh, ritualistic social experiment. Uh, would encourage you all to look in the show notes, read the Edsel article. Uh, read. Let us know what you think. Let do us think, know what you think. Do you think civil war is a good framing? Do you think a civil war is going to happen? What do you think of political sectarianism? I mean, tell us everything. Yeah, uh, and and again, let us know uh, what you thought of Roadrunner. Yes, uh, as as well. It's uh, as always. It's great to be uh, great to be with you. Uh, we've uh, really enjoyed doing this podcast. Uh, would urge you again you can always subscribe to the newsletter 
um, and support the podcast and the newsletter at reclaiminghope.substack.com. Leave a review on iTunes. Um, and uh, and we'll, we'll talk to you next week. This is Where is the Love. Bye. Where is the love?